welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending April 8th, 2023. This week, we go into way too much detail about things nobody cares about. We do that every week. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, there are 42 people every week that listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they are. I'm Kim Hollis, pointing angrily at the couch. With me are Tim Brighty, content creator and gamer, out of the running to buy WWE. I can't believe my offer of $16 didn't work. I mean, $16. <laughs> you overbid. Also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and sleeping on the couch after the Braves swept the Cardinals. It's not my fault you root for a bad baseball team. Oh, God. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who's currently in Montana. My choice? <laughs> no joke. That's it, y'all. <laughs> All right, then. At Warner Brothers Discovery this week, there's reports that there's progress in a new Harry Potter series for HBO Max. Yeah, the studio is negotiating with author J.K. Rowling for permissions to adapt her work. They're reportedly talking to her about bringing her on board as a producer. The series is supposed to adapt the original seven books, with each book being one season on HBO Max. Well, I'm sure that Ms. Rowling's loyal fans will be really happy about this. Let me just pull up the internet and... Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Tim, are you seeing this? Oh. (laughs) Yeah, this is where HBO Max had a choice to side with, you know, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and the original cast, or with J.K. Rowling. And they said, well, let's get rid of those pesky actors. Miss Rowling's on our team. Hey, Opie, let me tell you, you're Ron Howard now, okay? You're not young anymore. They're moving on, okay? They can get an entirely new generation of kids who will work super cheap, and they will convince people to buy Warner Brothers products despite everything David Zaslav has done. We've known this was coming. We can joke about it all we want. We'll watch it when it shows up. But I do think that we want to look at what's happened with Lord of the Rings and kind of take a step back and go, maybe, just maybe, it won't be the absolute juggernaut it looks like on paper. Yeah, and I think we have to also consider that the likelihood of them capturing casting lightning in a bottle like they did with the original cast, I don't know how they're going to do it. Yeah, that's exactly where my mind went as well. The cast really made the movie, surprisingly. They cast three very young actors at the time that turned out to be just perfect for the roles. And there was a lot of visual elements as well that developed throughout the series. And the question then is, if they're rebooting everything from square one, are they going to redo everything exactly the same? Will Hogwarts look the same? Will the school uniforms look the same? And if they don't, well, on the one hand, that means they can sell entirely new school uniforms and costumes to everybody but on the other there's a whole theme park out there based on the visuals of the movies and so what happens to that this is certainly all of course very early days there's a lot of negotiating going on and even when all the papers are signed and the money's handed over it's going to be years before any of this sees the light of day so it's going to be a while and they can all change when David Zaslav finds out about this project because he'll be like, this, costs, this is going to cost how much? <laughs> no, 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 we can't do that. 
Tim saying it is a joke, but there's a lot of truth in that. We're talking about Disney Plus with its Marvel problem, where it cannot afford to do the special effects it needs. It's cutting too many corners, and that's creating problems. Zaslav signing off on super extensive. I mean, it would be an abomination if a TV series came out in two or three years that had worse special effects than what we saw in the early 2000s, right? And yet, that's a viable possibility as long as David Zaslav is in charge. So there are questions here that there weren't about the original adaptations, which everyone who was involved with the project at the time knew it was going to be a juggernaut. And of course, there's always a question of how long Zaslav will be in charge. In our deep dive, the WWE has found its buyer, not Tim, as Endeavor, the Beverly Hills talent agency, is merging the UFC, which they own, with Vince McMahon's wrestling promotion to create a new company. The new company will be 51% owned by Endeavor and 49% owned by WWE shareholders. And what you have to like about this deal is we now know that Vince McMahon is going to go away forever and Oh no. Oh no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh no. They specifically got Vince McMahon to come back for this? What? Am I reading headlines from hell? This can't be happening. It's like they said, what is just one step above selling to Saudi Arabia? And they went with that. That is the honest to God truth here. Saudi Arabia would have been worse. But it's a matter of degrees. This is the second worst outcome because the people running UFC are terrible. They're slavers. They don't pay their talent. A lot of people leave UFC so that they can make money fighting somewhere else because they can't make enough of it at UFC. And that's a feature, not a bug. Dana White hates entitled athletes, even though he himself is way, way, way too rich for what his abilities suggest. And here we are. This is just a miserable turn of events for all involved. And I don't know, Tim, what do you think the streaming ratifications are of this? Because I'm already hearing they might go back to pay-per-views. Yeah, there, there's some discussion that Nikon had even tossed out prior to any sort of sale that there was the possibility that either through Peacock or just tr- striking out on their own again, they could take their, well, what used to be called pay-per-views and now are called premium live events like WrestleMania, for instance, either with an extra charge through Peacock or going back to pay-per-view where they could easily charge $50, $60, $70 for these events, like what always happened almost monthly prior to the existence of the WWE Network, just because they want money and they think people will, will buy it, but they're sadly mistaken at this point. But it is a distinct possibility that is on the table right now once this whole thing shakes out. Yeah, and Tim's actually being too generous here in his assessment in that UFC charges $80 per pay-per-view, $79.99 plus tax, generally winds up being in most places $86 to $90 for one pay-per-view. WWE runs 12 pay-per-views a year right now. It just doesn't call them that. It used to, and it charged an X amount for that, generally between $29.99 and $49.99 for most events. There were in-your-house shows that I believe used to cost about 20 bucks, if I'm remembering correctly, so there would sometimes be a cheaper one. A lot of people don't like the WWE product right now to begin with, and the idea is the new ownership will turn around and ask them to pay $80 per 
per pay-per-view event for that. I just don't see this as a viable business model in its current entity. As a matter of fact, dear friend of the podcast who uh, we all talk to regularly actually handles the sort of the paperwork, the contract law for these sort of mergers. I pointed out that right now Endeavor's debt is pretty much the same as what their revenue was in 2022. Not their net, their gross revenue in 2022. And he's like, honestly, that's not even bad in the corporate world. And I'm thinking, what universe is that not bad? So they're also coming into this with a lot of debt. And I see a lot of negatives and few positives. And I'm going to go back to this because I think it's important. Tim, I was telling you before the podcast, there's a moment in Breaking Bad at the end of one season where Walter White's wife asks him, uh, are you okay? How did you come out in this? And he looks around, he considers for a moment, and he says, reasonably well. That's Vince McMahon right now, a sex pest by his own admission who paid more than $20 million in hush money to women he sexually harassed, and he has just come back with more money and more power. This is a demoralizing turn of events. Yeah, especially since I know you continually mock it, but the last several months of the WWE product without the presence or an involvement of Vince McMahon was markedly better. And then this just, it all came crashing down. And I will talk a little more about that later. But yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to believe, but the WWE Network is nine years old at this point. When in, you know, it merged in Peacock a couple of years ago, but it was a standalone thing for, for, for several years. And people went from having to pay anywhere from 30 to $50 a month if you want to watch the pay-per-view to $10 a month. You cannot go back to that now. You can't do that. You can't. That's a stupid idea if they think they can get away with it. In our rapid fire this week, it looks like Lionsgate hasn't been able to find a buyer for stars. That's right. Lionsgate bought stars the cable channel and streaming service in 2016 for 4.4 billion dollars and it's been a money loser ever since they're wanting to get rid of it or at least the cable channel but can't seem to find a buyer so they filed with the sec that they're moving ahead with the spin-off of the channel that's expected to be completed by september and that'll come into play in just a moment the part of this story that has always amazed me was that the appeal of stars for a long time was very simple they signed a licensing deal with disney where they got the first run of their premium channel for Disney content at a time when it still mattered. There were titles like WALL-E that you could not actually watch anywhere else but stars for an extended period of time. Lionsgate bought stars just around the time Disney was like, oh no, we're never going to do anything about that again. And right around the time that Netflix and stars broke up. The timing just could not have been worse and they overpaid to boot after that. This is them making a mistake years ago and still paying for it today in my estimation. Amazon-owned streaming service MGM International will be rebranding as MGM Plus International. Ooh, stop the presses. It took me a while just to find out if MGM International was actually a real thing. But it is. It is a streaming service that was operated by MGM in Europe in the same way that they were operating Epics in the U.S. And as Amazon, that owns MGM, rebranded Epics to MGM Plus, it only made sense for them to simplify their branding and call MGM International MGM Plus International. To me, you were like the teacher in the Charlie Brown cartoon. How many times are you getting paid to say MGM? <laughs> are we doing endorsements now? <sighs> 
this does relate to the Lionsgate news where the studio Lionsgate had rebranded their Stars streaming service, Stars Play, in Europe to Lionsgate Plus, suggesting that they wanted to keep the streaming service and just get rid of the cable channel. If you're going to call your streaming service Lionsgate Plus, and then you tell everyone we're getting rid of stars, then what you're saying is you're getting rid of the cable channel. You're not getting rid of the streaming service. But then in the same breath that it was announced that MGM International was being rebranded, they also announced that Lionsgate was going to be licensing their content to MGM Plus International. So does that mean that Lionsgate Plus no longer has that content? Is Lionsgate Plus not going to be around much longer? There's a lot of fluidity here on the Lionsgate front. This is a studio that has had a lot of bad news, but also one really, really big bit of good news lately called John Wick Chapter 4. If they can just keep pumping out those John Wick projects, they'll be able to stay afloat. But without John Wick, Lionsgate is in a lot of trouble. I feel like if you had like a meter connected to me, you would have seen just a straight line. And then you said John Wick and there was a pulse. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. And then, you know, it went back again. I guess I'm just bitter about the fact that they didn't go with my name, which was MGM based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Uh, <laughs> everything about this is just, <laughs> oh, this is something for the lawyers and nobody else. Even for us, this is super dry and arcane. <laughs> Amazon has a plan and we know that, but getting to that point is just excruciating because there's so much minutia to just wade through and it's boring. Over at Netflix, a couple of executives are leaving as film divisions are consolidated. The streamer is saying they're going to make fewer movies, but better movies. And I assume that means there'll be less of a Netflix sheen. Hmm. Oh, I saw that Extraction 2 trailer. Oh, my God. If that's a Netflix sheen, please give me more of that. Shoot it into my veins. I do think that what Netflix has realized, which will come up when Tim discusses ratings in a while, is they don't need to make their own product as long as they can get cheap access to other product because they can make literally anything successful. And I guess that's going to be the model moving forward. It does raise questions. We at least thought Netflix might actually start considering, you know, more theatrical. Obviously, if they're going to do this... It just gets messier, but I can also see them thinking, wait a minute, if we're doing fewer movies that are more expensive, why wouldn't we do theatrical? I do love that David Zaslav school of thought. Could you guys just make hits from now on? I'm not sure it's up to the studios. I've worked for clients like that. It does exist, that sort of thinking. And Disney invented a new executive this week, naming Asad Ayaz as chief brand officer. David, why is this important? Yes, they invented a new executive and the computer wore tennis shoes, I guess. Sorry for the Kurt Russell joke nobody's going to get. Look, Disney has a problem right now and Bob Iger is painfully aware of it. And that's everyone is going to keep coming for the king. It's as simple as that. There are people on both sides of the political aisle who want to influence how story is told for the next two generations of people. So if they control Disney by whatever means necessary, if they get Disney telling the story they want, they start winning with their vision for the future. Disney knows this, and they have not done a good job of protecting the brand. We talked about it. God only knows how many times under Bob Chappick. Chappick did not appreciate the value of messaging. Disney's messaging has been poor with Marvel, it has been poor with Star Wars, and in some ways it has been poor with theme park pricing. You may wonder how that impacts, you know, streaming, but the reality is Disney Plus is one of two streaming services that matter more than the rest. 
this person's job is going to be making sure everyone believes in Disney again and trusts Disney in all things. And believe me, right now, that is an impossible ask of anyone. But we have watched Disney in the past under Xenia Mucha prove that they could control the message better than anyone could attack them. And so that is going to be Assad Aiz's job as chief brand officer. He is now in charge of protecting the mouse from criticism. That's a pretty cool job, mind you. It's the fairy dust guy. He's the guy in charge of the Disney brand. How many people would love to have that position? And to be fair, he, he didn't come out of nowhere. He was already a top executive at the Disney company before he got this new title. And I think Bob Iger is showing a lot of confidence in Ayaz here. I wonder if maybe this is a hint towards where Iger is going in his succession plan. Elaborate on what you mean there. Disney needs a new CEO once Iger retires, why wouldn't it be the guy whose job it is to protect and prop up the Disney brand? Uh, because then they would lose sight of their core purpose. I don't think that's the case at all. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't place him among the top 10 contenders. On top of everything else, he's still relatively new to the C-suite like this. So I think that's too big a promotion too early for Ayaz. But I will say this is the kind of job where people will get attention and you know long term there's just no downside to that for him we've seen kevin meyer just by being mentioned as a contender how much it has aided his career in some weird ways since then that's kind of the same thing here but you know right now i think disney has a short list of three or four people that it expects to be its next ceo and we're just waiting for the bake-off to start with that are you on that list david you could tell us no, and I'm going to be honest with you, it's probably for the best because I would say and do things that would have regrettable consequences to, you know, enemies of Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suffer fools. That's what Kim will tell you. And that's not what you want as Disney CEO these days. Iger doesn't either, which kind of shows that he might be aging out of the job. All right. Well, Tim, we definitely have some box office to talk about before we discuss the ratings. Sure. Uh, we are recording this on Friday, but it's, since it's Easter weekend, we had a couple Wednesday releases. And holy crap, the Super Mario Brothers movie is going to make a ridiculous amount of money this weekend. It's already at $58.2 million just from Wednesday and Thursday alone. It's going to make like $200 million in five days. What the hell? 12-year-old me would be like the most excited person in the world to see this movie if it came out a long time ago. But I'm just amazed that it managed to overcome mediocre views just by looking really cool, actually. <laughs> this is one of those things that amuses me to no end that people are surprised by it. For myriad reasons, most specifically, we were all talking about the surprise success of Puss in Boots last Christmas, which wasn't a surprise here because we know children's films underserved during the pandemic. Christmas inflates all box office. Super Mario is like that, only oh so much better. The trailers have been spectacular. And oh, by the way, no one cares about Puss in Boots. Everyone who has played <laughs> a video game in their life loves Mario. Everyone. And this movie, I mean, it showed hints from Luigi's Mansion, from Mario Kart, from Super Smash Brothers. They're throwing out all of their A-list <laughs> titles here to let you know it is just a hodgepodge. And apparently it's not even that great a film, is it, Tim? No, reviews are kind of mediocre. I mean, the target audience does not care about that. So it, it is, you know, bulletproof in that regard. But yeah, I, I mean, I knew it was going to do well, but I didn't think that well. I cannot wait to see the sequel where Wario does the same stuff as Bowser, but with <laughs> 
now the other question is, will we see the original Super Mario Brothers movie, the live action one from what, you know, 30 years ago show up on the ratings because people search streaming strikes for it? <laughs> that would be hilarious. But, you know, anything that gets royalties for the late Lou Albano's family, I guess, is a good thing. Or Bob Hoskins. <laughs> oh, <that's great. laughs> oh, man, I, I watched the TV show when I was a kid. Yeah, Lou Albano is Mario. Come on. Uh, we also had Air about Michael Jordan and Nike uh, with uh, Ben Affleck. So far, 5.7 million in two days. I guess this is notable. This is, wait, Amazon made this? Yep. This is Amazon and they're, we're going to spend a billion dollars on theatrical releases from now on thing. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, how long until it shows up on, on Prime, though? It looks like they haven't actually announced a release date for air on presumably Prime Video. Wouldn't it be insane if it showed up on Netflix? It is expected sometime in mid-May, but that's the best that we have right now. But yeah, it's it's going to be a huge weekend, a huge holiday weekend. And then obviously it's going to have a tremendous you know, second weekend too, as the box office is is looking pretty good. It is, it's very top heavy as I may bring up later when we discuss some of the movies on the ratings chart, but it is good to see that movies can, can still do these numbers in the post pandemic era. Yeah, that's one of the suppositions we had during the pandemic was that some titles would recover in box office. What we would never see was the strength of the top 10 that we have seen in the past. And that does appear to be 100% what's happening where we have these absolute juggernauts, but there isn't the support. And, you know, if you're playing Super Smash Brothers, if they ever add Michael Jordan, you can see he is no match for Mario. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the ratings. We have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, March 6th to Sunday, March 12th, 2023. And as we predicted a bit over a month ago, the shooting back to the top of the list is you. Uh, 1.3 billion minutes for now 40 episodes because, yep, the second half of the fourth season arrived on March 9th. We knew that was going to happen when once the second half showed up because the first season, just the five new episodes was enough to top the ratings. And here we're, we're doing it again with just a three-day three day number. So, yeah. Yeah, probably going to repeat the process next week and, and do just as well. And I'm still 100% convinced this is the model going forward for their premiere shows, the shows that they know are going to do well. They're going to conveniently split the season in two just so that they get that delayed bump and then hopefully get multiple subscriptions out of people. I mean, I think it makes sense in this regard. Kim and I are really bad about this. Most people are not. If we don't watch all of something immediately, we rarely go back to it. But for a lot of people watching, you know, let's say more than five shows at once is overwhelming. And because of that, Having the split means that they don't have to feel as pressured to catch up with everything. Netflix has to produce less content, but they get little change in the rating slash consumer behavior, and that's all they care about. So it's not necessarily my favorite business practice, but I feel like it's one that's got taste. Second is Outer Banks, another 1.2 billion minutes for its 30 total episodes. No surprise. I still wish we had that premiere week because I'm sure that was a huge number, but such is life dealing with Nielsen. Uh, something new in third, and we knew this was going to do well, unfortunately. MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. Three episodes, 1.1 billion minutes for the documentary about the plane that literally just vanished, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Uh, for some reason, it premiered on March 8th, which is the exactly the ninth anniversary of the incident. So I guess that was just some clever timing on their part, but I'm kind of over these, these sorts of things. And fourth is The Mandalorian from Disney Plus, 889 million minutes viewed for 18 episodes as it adds episodes now week by week with the third season. Yeah, we're going to see it here the pretty much the, the, whole, the whole time. And this is probably where it, it just seems to maintain its audience. It doesn't gain anything. It doesn't seem to to drop off too much. But well, maybe it will because I guess this the season's not as well received as the previous ones. 
Well, at least in, in my opinion, although I don't think I'm alone in this, especially in light of content like Andor, you suddenly see the problems with a show like The Mandalorian. It's much more simple. Best I can tell, it's still positive, but not as glowing as the previous ones. So maybe the, the, the Baby Yoda concept is just beginning to wear a little bit thin, or you have to keep up now with other with the other Star Wars shows as well, though I guess if you're watching this, why wouldn't you be watching the others? But who knows? Honestly, the Baby Yoda parts are still the really good parts. It's other <laughs> things that, it's kind of other stuff that comes out being a little bit, I don't know, dumb. I forgot to mention last week when we saw it return, you know, Pedro Pascal, now new king of streaming. You know it. <laughs> uh, in fifth, and I did sort of anticipate this last week, Chris Rock, Selective Outrage, 798 million minutes for his one episode you know, stand-up special, aired live. This is the full week of its existence. So I people went, went back to it, even though it wasn't live anymore. I really do attribute more to people wanting to see if he had something to say about the, the Will Smith thing. I would not have anticipated this. I really felt that it was going to be people watching it live and then never again. But like you said, Tim, there had to have been a lot of people wanting to hear Chris Rock say what he had to say about the slap at the Academy Awards when Will Smith walked up to him and slapped him. As a reminder, we were absolutely staggered by the number last week. So this is that much more surprising. Yeah, and oh, this is easily the biggest number we've ever seen for something that's just one episode. That's a it's because it's a stand-up special. It's an hour long. That's a lot of minutes viewed. That's a lot of people watching it wrong side of the tracks we saw that last week in six 569 million minutes 16 episodes sex life 554 million minutes in seventh for 14 episodes next in fashion 500 million minutes 20 episodes the murder murders a southern scandal down to ninth 414 million minutes for three episodes and uh, a little bit of a surprise in tenth from hulu history of the world part two 409 million minutes for eight episodes it released over four days. They premiered two episodes on the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. So it does encompass the entire week. So we definitely won't see it again from here because it's the entire ratings week. But I, I'm actually pleasantly surprised too, to see that it, that it made it here. Movies is led by Luther, The Fallen Son, 898 million minutes for the Idris Elba movie that's like related to a series that he does. That's right. It's a movie sequel to the series Luther that played on, uh, I think it was PBS in the US, but it was a British series BBC where he series, plays. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, I didn't expect this to, I think we we definitely talked about it, but I didn't expect that to show up and win the week, actually. That is a staggering number considering the rest of the movie's chart this week. I was caught a little off guard. There is evidently a very strong following for Luther in the U.S. Yeah, this is actually just a three-day number as well because it premiered on the 10th of March. So we might see it do even better next week. But yeah, uh, guys, let's get stupid. Because as much as I thought the movies list was stupid last week, it probably is even dumber this week. In second, credited to Netflix and Peacock, though we know that means it's like, you know, 98% Netflix. Turbo, 406 million minutes. I saw this on Thursday and I just closed my browser and decided I wanted no part of it. (laughs) Honest to God, we saw this in theaters and Kim doesn't even remember it. That's how unmemorable Turbo is. I remember it's about a snail that races, and that is the only thing I can tell you about it. Yes, that, that's the entire concept. It's it's a, a snail who wants to go fast because, you know, he's a snail and they move slow. Yeah, it's, this is a 2013 animated movie from DreamWorks. I've actually tried to find out what, where this came from, and it, it's not on the list I have of things returning to Netflix in March. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe it did, and they just they didn't view it as significant enough to include it. 
<laughs> I don't have. Oh my god! I, this one, I this one, I'm I'm stumped. In third, uh, this this is actually in the non-stupid department, but after that, it, everything else mostly is from Peacock. Puss in Boots: The Last Wish, 383 million minutes. This is the again part of the whole deal with Universal has with Netflix, where of course it makes sense that it's on Peacock because that that's that's under the same umbrella, but only for four months, and then it will show up on Netflix for ten, and then once and again return to, return to Peacock for four more after that. And when it shows up on Netflix, it'll come back to the charts, and it'll yes. be huge. And it'll do double this number because it yeah, will because that's how it works. So I'm actually surprised. It's, I'm happy it's here, but yeah, well, I'll hold this thought for four months, and then when we marvel that you know Puss in Boots is the number one movie for the weekend with like a billion minutes, this is why. And fourth, The Hunger Games, and then uh, the whole franchise returned to Netflix on the first, 353 million minutes. Uh, this is where I leave you. You saw that come back last week, 317 million minutes. The Hunger Games Catching Fire, 251 million minutes in six. Disney Plus's Moana, the only Disney movie on the, the movie's chart this week, 246 million minutes. Last week's winner, We Have a Ghost, drops to eighth, 241 million minutes. Last week was actually the first set full seven days uh, of it being, being charted, so I'm not surprised that it that it dropped from here because that's that's what tends to happen. Uh, in ninth, Burlesque, 233 million minutes. Yes, the 2010 film starring Christina Aguilera and Cher. So just to be clear, Turbo and Burlesque did as well as Puss in Boots and We Have a Ghost, which are late 2022 slash 2023 releases. And if someone can explain this to me, please bring all kinds of charts and data points, okay? <laughs> I understand the MGM stuff better than I understand this. <laughs> yeah, this I, I do have came back to Netflix uh, on March 1st from where, wherever it, it was. So why it's showing up the full week later, you, you got me. Uh, but the same is true with the movie in 10th. And at least this one's better. It's Rango, 213 million minutes. Kim and David, you spoke very highly of this when we were discussing it on the pre-show. Yes, we Rango's a great, great, fun movie. We are Rango super fans, yes. And it actually, we talked about this before the podcast. It's one of the few non-Disney releases of the 21st century to win Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards. Yep, it's the uh, 2011 uh, film from released by Paramount, that lead voice of Johnny Depp. Acquired is 10 shows we have seen before, led by The Last of Us. It's season complete, 1 billion minutes. I think we might see it. We'll hold on for another week because those the episodes have been releasing on Sunday. And then as the ratings chart runs from Monday to Sunday, uh, it does add the episode, but we don't really know how much it's that's impacting these, these numbers. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it do another billion next week and then drop down the chart. But yeah, this was a, a big, big win for uh, HBO and HBO Max. Other than that, it's all the usual suspects. NCIS, once again, credited to Netflix and Paramount Plus, 888 million minutes in second. South Park is suddenly hanging around all the, all the time now after we didn't literally didn't see it at all before. HBO Max, 806 million minutes for 310 episodes. And then, you know, Cocomelon, Bluey, Grace Anatomy, Blacklist, Gilmore Girls, Friends, and New Amsterdam wrap up that chart for this week. Yeah, it looks like season 26 of South Park came out at the start of February. And unlike some past seasons, we actually got six whole episodes this season. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and those episodes ran through the end of March. I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing people watching the new episodes on HBO Max. Yeah, that works for me. All right. Thanks for that, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Cable Channel and Streamer Showtime, soon to be known as Paramount Plus with Showtime, continues to be in flux. One bright spot was that the producers behind the hit Homeland are working on a reboot of the movie Gattaca. Were a lot of people out there demanding a remake of Gattaca? <laughs> no. 
But the upcoming series King Shaka, based on the Zulu leader, has been canceled with 12 days left of shooting. Ouch. What? How does that make financial sense to anybody? Presumably, they still wrapped up the production. They're going to try to shop it around. I don't know that they're sending everybody home and saying, sit by your phone. If somebody buys it, we can finish up. But this is just absurd at this point. If all the guilds don't start putting clauses in their contracts with the studios to cut out this nonsense, it's going to get stupid. And the Courtney B. Vance crime thriller Heist 88 is jumping from Paramount Plus to Showtime. feels like they're trying to give Showtime an identity. High State 8 is very much a African-American urban crime project. And I guess that's where they're trying to steer the Showtime audience. But I just don't get it. I, I don't get what it is they're trying to do there. Okay, as always, we close out with what's been keeping us busy over the past week. And I've been a little bit busy, but after listening to Tony Robinson's podcast, I watched the very first episode of Time Team. (laughs) And it was really good. I enjoyed it because it was about King Alfred the Great, who is an ancestor of mine, as it happens. And they actually uncovered some really cool stuff and proved that he had been there hiding in the swamps and whatnot. So I liked it. I will continue to watch. It's kind of my sort of thing. I will say this first episode was in the 90s, so it felt dated and almost a little bit like a spoof of a show like this. But I think that's only because of the age of it. Well, you've only got 20 seasons to catch up. I know. There's a whole bunch more. So (laughs) lots and lots of them. (laughs) So what's been keeping you busy, Raul? I've been doing some traveling this week, so I didn't get a chance to sit down and watch a lot of stuff. But I have been listening to podcasts, and I'll tell you about a series of true crime podcasts that started with Murder in Oregon and is now up to Murder in Miami. Murder Miami is its third season. The second season was Murder in Indiana. It's a podcast hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and crime journalist Phil Stanford. The series boils down to Lauren interviewing Phil about his decades of wild stories. Murder in Oregon, the first series, was probably the most authentic. It's about the murder of the director of Oregon's Department of Corrections, Michael Frankie. Phil asserts that the murder was a conspiracy from people inside the Department of Corrections trying to conceal their corruption that Frankie was about to expose. And together, Lauren and Phil make a strong case as to who may have been responsible for this still unsolved murder. This series also hits close to home as they describe people and places that I'm very familiar with. But I was first attracted to the series by ads for their latest season, Murder in Miami, about the drug business in South Florida in the late 70s and early 80s. During this time, Phil wasn't so much a journalist reporting on crime as much as he was a witness. By the third season, and Lauren and Phil's interactions have changed. Episodes are full of awkward and staged Q&As between Lauren and Phil. The narrative is eye-opening, casting a light on a dark time in American history and showing how interconnected the drug trafficking business was. I'm not questioning the accuracy of the reporting or its authenticity, only its delivery. Murder in Miami wraps up with episode 10, which was just released at the end of March. I stuck it out because I wanted to hear the conclusion, but ultimately I was left unsatisfied as there was no new bombshell revelations and the drop in production value just made it frustrating to listen to. On the other hand, Murder in Oregon, the first season of the series, is an incredible story taking you through a conspiracy that's hard to deny. I recommend Murder in Oregon for true crime fans. 
Murder in Miami, though? Not so much. All right. Tim, how about you? We likely got the last gasp of coherent, watchable product from WWE this past weekend. And thankfully, that coincided with WrestleMania, which they've actually wisely split into two nights for the last few years. I mean, say what you want about a cash grab for twice the gate, but it does keep the crowd engaged the whole time, especially when the product is good, which it was at least until the end of this weekend. Night one at WrestleMania may have been one of the best events WWE has produced in literal decades. You can't really discount night two either, which while not equal to night one, may have had the best match of the whole weekend. One other great match with a booking decision we'll be talking about for the next 20 years, and one of the most unintentionally hilarious moments that's ever happened at a WrestleMania. I mean, we got to see things like, you know, John Cena disappointing a bunch of Make-A-Wish kids by, by losing his match. Seth Rollins having a great match with a YouTube sociopath who I really wish wasn't that good at this. Rey Mysterio finally agreed to have a match against his son, which was a moment fans have been waiting for for months, and the match was fine with the, the payoff and the story was worth it. Rhea Ripley and Charlotte Flair had an outstanding match that I did not think Charlotte was capable of having. It was two women just going all out against each other and Rhea Ripley is absolutely a, a star. The main event, a culmination of a story that had been building for a year, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn versus the Usos, just a fantastic match with an incredibly hot crowd and a perfect, satisfying ending. Night one was just absolutely tremendous. And look, night two wasn't going to recapture that, but the three-way match between Sheamus, Drew McIntyre, and Gunter was just brutally awesome. It's quite possibly the closest thing that WWE could ever have to a New Japan match, and it lived up to the potential of these guys just beating the heck out of each other. Of course, Cody Rhodes and Roman Reigns had a very good match, and despite the entire world wanting and expecting Cody to win the WWE title from Reigns, who's held it for like three years now, that didn't happen. Um, but we know who's been probably pulling the strings the whole time. And then there was the incredible save by, of all people, Snoop Dogg. When an impromptu match by an inexplicably returning Shane McMahon went wrong because 53-year-old men should not be doing leapfrogs because you'll tear your quad, which I guess is something that's hereditary in the McMahon family. He figured out something was wrong and, and listened to someone basically saying improvise, and he did. And <laughs> it was... <laughs> One of the funniest things that I've seen in a long time because he, and he just made it look very smooth. Like, you know, oh, this was what was supposed to happen, even though, you know, there was, there was an injury during the match. And then it all came crashing down with the Raw after WrestleMania, which is supposed to be one of the most exciting shows of the year because it's the day after WrestleMania. It's supposed to be the big reset. Here come some new storylines or people returning or people showing up for the first time. And it was very clear within moments that the show was being run by Vince McMahon because of the new ownership deal that WWE has. And it was it was terrible. And we are all sad and disappointed, but it was a good run while it lasted. Uh, I'm, along with other people, suddenly rethinking my enthusiasm for, for WWE at the moment. But at least WrestleMania was fun. All right. David, how about you? First of all, let's give Tim credit for finally admitting that WWE should aspire to the bar of New Japan, but almost always fails because it's nowhere near as good. We completed Night Agent the other day, and I'm not sure Kim and I have thought about it once since then. It started off with so much promise, but then it just turned into glorified 24 fan fiction, didn't it, honey? It says a lot that I kind of forgot that we watched it. Um, <laughs> it yes, it really did just I know Raul mentioned that every thriller trope that you can imagine being used was used and also there's just one performance that really bothers me on 
the series. So that was an issue as well. And then we're watching Ted Lasso. We're caught up with the most recent episode. Uh, I think Kim disagrees with me, but I just haven't felt it's had the magic this year. I feel like the extra length of the episodes has really, really hurt it. And Keely in particular, first two seasons when Keely's on screen, it's absolute magic. And now because of characters they've introduced in Keely's world, it's held back. Kim, do you disagree? I do disagree. I really am enjoying this season, but I I will also acknowledge that it's more melancholy than past seasons have been. And that might be an additional factor into why it might not be working for you. There was a moment in season two where Nate went into a restaurant And ever since then, I've learned to fear whenever he enters that restaurant because I know that Ted Lasso is going to be bad as long as that scene is ongoing. And that has unfortunately happened in the most recent episode. I will say the Zava stuff, absolutely brilliant. Just a hysterical character. And then we're one down on The Mandalorian, but we're mostly caught up on The Mandalorian. And I just feel this season, there's way too many Mandalorians. Please eliminate three. Kim, am I wrong here too? (laughs) There's a lot of Mandalorians, yeah. (laughs) P.S. You are not a crackpot. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Like I said before, when we were talking about the Mandalorian, I still love Grogu. And I think maybe it's the fact that there's not enough Grogu and too much Mandalorian that is causing the problem or too much other Mandalorians besides the Mandalorian we want to see. And then finally, I have been playing Resident Evil for some, not anywhere near as as much as I wish I were, but him and I have started questioning the business model of the shopkeep in Resident Evil 4 who <laughs> appears to just show up in random dungeons and, you know, just absolute hellscapes and then make a few thousand pesetas and be on his way. <laughs> Do we think he has like a turnkey online store or something? Because this can't be his only business, right? <laughs> Maybe he's got an Etsy shop. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for us this week. Bye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Streaming Void. Be sure to watch for us again next week.